0: All right, uh, I'm going to keep my remarks brief, and this right to our afternoon speaker, our afternoon speaker is Professor David Hackett Fisher, University Professor and Warren Professor of History at Brandeis University, and he was a prize-winning author of uh, well, a number of books, uh, including Albion Sea, The Great Waves, Paul Revere's Ride, Washington's Crossing, which you have, and Liberty and Freedom, a Visual History of America's Founding Ideas. Uh, given the theme that we are, have been exploring so far uh, early in this uh, leg, the Philadelphia leg, uh, together, the American Revolution, his title uh, for his talk today is uh, Leadership in the American Revolution and the Invention of a Welcome. David How's the sound? Can you hear me? Am I coming through uh, all around? Uh, Okay. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's an honor to be with you. I'm told there were 900 applications for this uh, program. 900. I think this program is harder to get into than Harvard. (laughs) Uh, And it's an honor to be with you in other ways. I've been uh, meeting and talking with teachers around the country, as you are all from around the country. And um, I compare in my mind what I read about on the schools, about the schools in, in, in our daily newspapers, and then what I uh, learn about what you all are doing. The uh, the newspapers and the, um, uh, the our political leaders give us the bad news about schools, but there's a lot of good news that never gets in the paper, and I'm just amazed at the creativity that I am meeting when I talk to you all about what you are doing in your classrooms. So what I want to do today is to talk a little bit about what I've been doing, uh, first in some of my own writing, and then when I try to put it to work in the classroom, what um, opportunities and problems I'm meeting, and then I hope we can get into your, um, some of your experiments that way and compare notes. Let me begin with the year 1776. We're surrounded by it here. Have you all been to the Constitution Center? It's a wonderful experience, especially to go in that room with all of the framers right there. And it's haunting to, to, to see that. And to think of that year, which we remember as a year of glory... And then I was amazed when I um, got into it for that book, Washington's Crossing, and found a letter from Robert Morris to George Washington in December, and he said, thank God this year is over. He said, this is the worst year of my life. I hope we'll never have another one like it. And I was amazed to read that. And then Washington, it was even more amazing to read Washington's reply, in which he agreed entirely this was a year that had been an agony for him, and I've been struck by that. That is, the glory of the of this year was in those glorious texts. Uh, in the first half of the year, uh, there were quite a lot of texts. Uh, I would count six of them, maybe seven, uh, that I think uh, sh- sh- shaped in a major way the world we live in, when Lord Acton was teaching his first course at Oxford on modern history. He started the course in 1776, uh, and the reason he did that were these works. The first of them you've been through very carefully recently, just, just this morning, I think. Or and That's the Declaration of Independence. I won't go over that again. But then I'm also thinking about Tom, Thomas Paine's pamphlet, Common Sense. All of these were revolutionary works, but in different ways. That is, Thomas Paine and a rhetorical revolution. A new language of politics. Uh, that uh, uh, There'd never been a book written quite that way before. And I think its rhetoric is interesting. Uh, and then it was, um, on top of that, uh, it was a, a response to Thomas Paine by John Adams. A little pamphlet called Thoughts on Government that he published in 1776. He was in the Second Continental Congress, uh, and they knew he'd been a great scholar of constitutions. He taught himself Italian to read about the, the constitutions of the, of, the, of the Italian republics. And two delegates from North Carolina asked if he would write them a few pages on his thoughts on how a constitution should be written. They said we, they, they needed it in a hurry, because they were about to write one themselves. And so he did that, and then they began to pass it around, and the other delegates asked to see it, and so it was agreed that it would be published, and it was published anonymously. It's only about 20 pages. And it distills another way of thinking about constitution framing, and at least five state constitutions were based on that little pamphlet, Thoughts on Government. And it was all that idea of mixed and balanced government, which we could get into later. So those were three works that appeared in America, Declaration of Independence, Thomas uh, Paine's Common Sense, and The Thoughts on Government. And there were three works that appeared in England. Uh, One of them was Jeremy Bentham's writings. It's now published with the title of of A Fragment on Government. And it, I believe, was the first to use, or at least to develop in, in, in in a serious way, the phrase, the greatest good for the greatest number. And it was the beginning of his utilitarianism, 1776, a new calculus of politics. And also following on Jefferson and Paine, the idea that people don't exist to serve their governments, but it's the other way around. And here was a calculus for measuring how well they were doing, the greatest good for the greatest number. And then it was another work that was published in Scotland. And what was it? The Wealth of Nations. Uh, this wonderful eccentric, very radical in the in 1776, uh, uh, Adam Smith. He loved. To, he gave peripatetic lectures, walking through the streets of of, uh, uh, of uh, Edinburgh. Once he was teaching in Edinburgh, at other times at Glasgow, and he would just walk along. Once he he was giving a lecture, and he fell into an open manhole, <laughs> climbed out, uh, sort of shook himself, and and picked up in mid sentence. As if nothing had happened. And what he was caught up in, in that obsessive way, was the idea that nature's way is best. That, um, that uh, 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 the, it's the idea of the market, uh, of minimal government, of the invisible hand. 1776. And then it was also, in, in England, another book, uh, which was a history book. It was Edward Gibbons' Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 1. Many more to go. And it was a celebration of reason and uh, thinking rationally about the world. And it it made an argument. It argued a thesis in many volumes. And he summarized the thesis in in one sentence that the Roman Empire declined and fell from two things. One was barbarism and the other was Christianity. And you can imagine the uproar. But what it was was a celebration of reason and of reasoning about the world, an attack on dogma. And then there's another work which Foucault would put on this list by the Comte de Mirabeau in France, an essay on language. And he argues, he summarizes his thesis in a sentence. He said, words are things. Words are things. That is, he is talking about the fact that words have a reality that is separate from what they describe. Uh, That the image has a reality as well as the object. 1776. And I think you put these things together and I think we can see why it would be that that, uh, Lord Acton would begin his idea of modern history in this year. But then... There was the second half of that year, which is what Robert Morris and George Washington remembered so painfully. And it was six months in which the the Americans almost lost the revolution, came within just to the very edge of losing it all. Uh, And uh, my book, Washington's Crossing, is a little bit about that. And what I I have done in that, all of my work is a series of inquiries. I I thought I'd just tell the story of Washington's Crossing and I got into it and I found something I hadn't expected to find. And let me summarize that in just a few minutes. What I found was that George Washington was given a job that he thought he couldn't do to be commander in chief of the Continental Army when he was elected unanimously here in Philadelphia he turned to Patrick Henry, who was in the room with him, and he said, he said, depend upon it, Mr. Henry. From this moment, you may date the ruin of my reputation. And off he went to Boston to take command of this army, as it was euphemistically called. And he met people whom he hadn't really dealt with before. He grew up in the northern neck of Virginia. It's that area between the Rappahannock and the Potomac Rivers. Huge, it ran... From the Chesapeake up into the mountains, it spanned three degrees of longitude, and it belonged to one family, Uh, and that family had basically raised George Washington, it shaped his views, and it was an aristocratic British family that raised him to a very hierarchical way of thinking about the world, and that was deepened by his experience of running a plantation, of the politics of Virginia, and much more. And then he found himself coming from this hierarchical world to Massachusetts, uh, and he ran into the, uh, the New England militia, and he was appalled by them. He wrote home as if he had been he had come into a foreign country. He said, "They are a dirty and a nasty people. they are a leveling people, he said, uh, and he went on a great great length and the, and the, the people of New England uh, reciprocated they were not th- pleased. With this man, they, they there were many verses of Yankee Doodle, which are not sung by children today, and uh, they were um, they were comment, they were commentaries on the the airs of Captain Washington and his slapping stallion, as they called as they as as they, as they, they called him. And Washington found it was very difficult to do anything with these Yankee uh, militia, and it got even worse when the riflemen arrived for the back country and they had on their hunting shirts their idea of what they were fighting for, and it was that rattlesnake and the phrase, if you missed the point of the rattlesnake, don't tread on me, that is. It was the only idea of liberty in that generation that was first-person singular. Uh, and uh, they were also slaveholders, and they they camped next to these New England militia. A good many of the militia, New England militia, were, were slaves, the former slaves themselves. And there were catcalls and insults, and then fists began to fly. And soon there was an insurrection that was larger than the battles of Lexington and Concord combined. And George Washington rode into the center of this melee, and he took a backcountry rifleman in one hand uh, and, a, uh, and a, a militiaman in the, in the other, and in the, in the source that we have, he, quote, spoke with them, end quote, and he put a stop to it. But the question was, how would he lead these men? And it got worse. It got worse when the Philadelphia Associators joined the army later. They came from here. And this, they were Benjamin Franklin's idea of a, of, a, of a militia. They elected their own officers. They, their, each battalion had a committee of privates that told the officers how to run the war, how to dress. You can imagine how George Washington felt about that. And on top of that, there were the so-called silk stocking regiments. Smallwood's Maryland regiment, and these were sons of planters, very purse proud they were. And they insisted on a covenant in which they um, they said that if they were treated in ways that infringed their honor, they reserved the right to go home. So here were four different ways of thinking about the cause, and Washington had to make them into an army. And he led them from from uh, from New York from, from New England down to New York. And as he did, the British made their, their greatest effort to defeat the American, war, the American Revolution in the late summer of 1776. And the result was a catastrophe for the American cause. The British and these German soldiers, a lot of my book is about these guys who were highly professional, very good at their jobs. Uh, and uh, there were a lot of them, uh, 35,000 of them, uh, and Washington was outnumbered. Uh, he, his, uh, these, he was up against a group of generals who had, on the average, more than 25 years' experience. Uh, his uh, generals had about one year's experience. And the result was that everything failed on the American side. Uh, intelligence failed. Discipline f- failed. The camp sanitation failed, which was a desperate thing because people got sick and the morbidity uh, and the mortality rose. A uh, 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 very high, logistics failed, and the American army was defeated in one battle after another, and it went on uh, from August through to November. And the worst of it was in November when a fragment of the American army had had put itself into a fortified position that is now Fort Washington in New York City, and uh, on very high ground. And they were surrounded and forced to surrender. And George Washington watched from the other shore, the Hudson. He was on the Jersey Palisades. And he watched as these uh, British troops, who did not think well of the American rebels, as they called them, they were fighting for a cause, too, of order and discipline. They were fighting by rules in Europe. And one of the rules was that in war, a, a captor could decide whether his captive should live or die. And they decided, some of them, that these, some of these American rebels were not fit to live, and they killed them, murdered them, while Washington looked on helplessly from across the Hudson River. And he was reduced, we have an eyewitness account, he was reduced to tears, weeping, in, in, in frustration. Nothing he could do to stop this horror that was unfolding before his eyes. And then he led his army in retreat across the state of New Jersey. And as he went, he asked a young lieutenant of infantry, who was James Monroe, a future president, fifth president, to stand by the side of the road in Newark and count the army as it went by. It had been about 30,000 in midsummer. In November, it was down to 3,000 men. He'd lost 90% of his army. And he was forced to retreat all the way across New Jersey over the Delaware River. And there he came. To rest and in just a short period, these British commanders had recovered a large part of New York, a large part of New Jersey, and then they also struck in that same week and uh, took possession of Rhode Island. So they they had recovered; they thought they'd recovered for the crown three out of the thirteen colonies in just in just a, a, just about two months. Uh, and then they issued a proclamation of amnesty. And many, many thousands of people in New Jersey accepted the terms and swore allegiance to George III. And on both sides, leaders thought that was it. There'd be another campaign maybe to mop it up. But it was was really over. And then what happened next was what really surprised me. What, What happened was that somehow these American generals and also the leaders in the Continental Congress found the resolve to go on. And what they did was to invent something new in the world, which was as new as those documents in early 1776. And it was a new form of open leadership. Those documents had described an open society as something new in the world, or at least we can say an opening society. Not not at all, all all the way open, but what's an open society? It has some sort of democratic element in it, in its politics. It has some idea of private property Uh, in its its economy. It has an idea of the individual in its social thinking. It has a strong sense of the rule of law. It has a conception of pluralism within this system. And I think that defines what I would understand as an open society. And open societies pose many problems. One particular problem they pose is about leadership. Uh, They require people to lead in a different way and Washington wrote a letter after he was dealing with those militiamen and the backcountry riflemen and he said a people unaccustomed to restraint cannot be uh, drove they must be led and he said that with an air of discovery about it because it wasn't the way he ran his plantation Uh, and so what he began to do and the others around him was to work out a new way of what I would call open leadership. And I think that was as important as anything that happened in 1776. And it was the beginning of a tradition of open leadership that I think we see in opening societies all around the world. And we can see it developing as a tradition by a process of reinvention, which is what I think much of your work is going to be about in this seminar, because the three great inventors and reinventors I'm going to be talking about them a little bit today, will be George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and Franklin Roosevelt. I think all had a role in continuously reinventing this tradition. But what was this idea? We can see it happening as these men are in their camps in late November uh, and December of 1776 trying to put the pieces together again. And the first thing they did was to return to what they all called the cause. And this idea of the cause was something they understood in many different ways. All those different groups in the army had different ideas of what what they were fighting for. They all called it liberty and freedom in some form or other, but they had very different notions of what they were. But what Washington did, he worked very closely uh, with Thomas Paine, who was, as we would say today, embedded in the Continental Army. He was traveling with the Continental Army from New York across New Jersey, and when he got on the other side of the Delaware River, he had already come to the conclusion that it was time to publish another pamphlet. And this was the pamphlet called the American Crisis. It was actually a series of pamphlets. He couldn't find a printer. There was the, the people were so desperate in, in in Philadelphia that the streets were empty, the shops were 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 closed, there were the print shops were were, were not functioning. Finally, he was able to get it printed. And in early December, it began, to, as in, in newspaper columns, uh, to circulate through the army. And it's about the times that try men's souls. You all have read that. As these, this was the first literate army, I think. The privates, most of them could read and write. And they read, and around their campfires, they talked about this cause. And so the first, I think, part of this open leadership was to return to an idea of the cause. And then the next thing Washington did was to gather very able people around him. Uh, and he did it in a much more open way. Uh, and they were very diverse. They were as diverse as this country. And he and Thomas Paine agreed on very little about some of the substantive issues of that cause. But they worked together, and Washington surrounded himself with quite a lot of people like that who were extremely difficult to deal with. Alexander Hamilton. Very difficult fellow, but very able. And Washington had a way of working with difficult people. And then he also invented a way of working with them together in new open councils of war. And I I got really interested in councils of war, partly because I found something. It was on the night before the first Battle of Trenton. I won't go into the military details of it. Suffice to say that two armies were camped on opposite sides of a small creek called Pink Creek that runs through, throws through Trenton. On one side was General Cornwallis and his British and Hessian troops and the other side was George Washington and General Cornwallis called a council of war and it was a very chummy affair. They'd all gone to the English public schools together and they called each other by their old school nicknames but it was more of a court than a council. What he did, Cornwallis did, was to announce what his plans were for the next day. A good many of his officers thought he was making a big mistake. But they didn't press it, and he didn't listen. And it was a top-down system, which was the way much of that army worked. On the other side of Ascent Pink Creek, Washington summoned the Council of War. It was much bigger. Civilians were invited. Lots of people who had some knowledge of detail that might be useful. And Washington began not by laying out a plan, but by posing a problem. They were in a tight spot. What should they do about it? And they had a very open give and take, and Washington listened. He was very, very good at listening. I think that's a large part of what this open leadership is about. Everybody knew who was in command. But he listened, and then he had that way of bringing people to a consensus. And the result was the night march to Princeton, another battle of of an American victory over a British brigade of this time and it happened it could only have happened as a the outcome of that open system of leadership these open councils then he also was this was the first generation to talk of public opinion so they're listening to public opinion very closely and they observe that the american people have high expectations of their leaders in in, in war they want them to be very bold and very prudent at the same time what does that mean? Boldness meant they were to take time by the forelock. They were really to get control of what in the Pentagon today is called the tempo of events. The tempo of events. Uh, but at the same time, they were, they were to be prudent in a particular way. They were to be very, very careful with the lives of their men. And these open systems have, are not tolerant of heavy casualty lists. And so these American leaders had to work out some way of being bold and prudent at the same time. And they did it in those open councils and they did it by adopting open operational ways of conducting themselves which were very flexible, highly flexible. Uh, They were very good at uh, making use of the weather. This keeps recurring in the military history of the revolution. And it was the storm on the Delaware that Washington turned to his advantage. It was the fog at Long Island where he did the same thing. And it's a long list of weather opportunities. And the same sort of opportunities might have come up on the British side but there 's an old Yankee proverb that some folks are weather wise and some folks are otherwise, and General Washington was weather wise and General Howe was otherwise and it was a It came out of being able to think very flexibly in a very pragmatic way about uh, about all of this. They did lots of other things which I go into in in um, in, in detail in my in, in my book, which i won 't do today but it 's about how they used lots of things that the Pentagon talks about today, force multipliers. Uh, They used mobility. They moved very quickly by 18th century standards. They they marched at two miles an hour. General Howe was marching at one mile an hour, and he said they move with more celerity than we. Uh, And they did various other things of that sort as well. Uh, And uh, the result of all of this was was a, a, a great success. It was a turning of the tied in that New Jersey battle. I first thought it was about Princeton and Trenton, but then I discovered that it was a campaign that went on from mid-December up into the beginning of spring. And in that period, the, um, the American Continental Army fought 84 engagements, 84 engagements. And it got, the, got control of the initiative in this period. And it inflicted heavy losses by a process of attrition so that General Howe, who started with 35,000 men, by, it, by the beginning of the spring is now down to, in one of his uh, his lists of effectives, down to 12,000 effectives. And they were able to uh, to, uh, to do that. And then I'm doing another book now. I've been lecturing at the Army War College about these things. My students there are lieutenant colonels, 300 of them in each class, who are often back from from Iraq, uh, and they are students of what the army calls the operational art. Between tactics and strategy, there's this middle layer of operations. Washington has mostly been written about as a, as a general in the revolution, the war in general, or about uh, a commander on the battlefield. And he lost a lot of battles. My colleague Joe Ellis said he lost more battles than any victorious general in history and he did lose a lot of them but he won the campaigns and the book that i one of the book i'm doing is about 10 campaigns he led he and general green and general lafayette led in 10 campaigns and they won 9 of them 9 of them even as they lost the major battles now how did they do it that open style of leadership and other american generals led in um, other campaigns, 13 of them, and they didn't have that open style that was developing in the Continental Army, and they, out of those 13 uh, campaigns, won two of them. And we can see what a difference it makes. And then, after the war, Washington applied this open style of leadership to other tasks. The first was what to do in the critical period, 1783 to 1787, when the country seemed to be coming apart. And he began to use exactly that same method of open leadership. And he gathered around him at Mount Vernon, a group of very difficult people, but very able and and covering a lot of ideological ground. Madison, Hamilton, lots of others. And they began to put the the country on the road to Philadelphia, in this, in, the, in, 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 uh, in this, uh, in this, uh, uh, this uh, these events that you're going to be studying here uh, tonight and tomorrow, and there, then when the con- when the, the convention met, Washington was asked to be the uh, uh, the, the uh, president of the, of the of the convention again elected unanimously, and behind the scenes he was doing exactly the same thing. He was living in the house of Robert Morris. He was building those groups. He rarely spoke on the convention floor, but his presence was felt continuously in terms of this open leadership that had all those qualities uh, together. And he'd also brought in something else that he'd started to do in the revolution. Uh, It it happened in that Princeton-Trenton campaign, and it was an idea that if one wants to keep on the right side of public opinion, it's necessary to do the right thing in the right way There's an ethical dimension to this. And Washington first began to work with that after he captured that Hessian garrison at Trenton. And the question is, what to do with those men? And some people would have done to them as the Americans had been done to at Fort Washington. They would have put them to the sword, but Washington said, we will treat them according to what they called the policy of humanity. And they insisted on that in the Continental Army. They, sometimes it felt it didn't quite work, but they kept doing that. Uh, and what they did was to link the conduct of the war to the values of the revolution. He kept doing that in the way that he would go about making these decisions in the critical period and in the Constitutional Convention as well. Uh, and uh, always getting an idea of uh, doing the right thing in the right way in small aspects of his decision making. And then he is unanimously elected president of the United States. And he does it once more. He uh, creates a cabinet that was just extraordinarily diverse. He gets John Adams and Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson and James Madison's brought in from the House of Representatives and they, they are put in the same room together and kept there. Uh, and it was an extraordinary way of tapping the talent of this country in that very open manner. And he organized his presidency in exactly the same way that he'd run his councils of war. The cabinets and the councils of war are, are, are doing just that, are being, being conducted in just that sort of way. He's very flexible, and there's a kind of political flexibility, even as his strong sense of the cause. The cause is now about the Republic. It's not just about liberty and freedom in a disembodied way, but it's about an idea of a free republic. And that idea of the cause is understood in different ways, but that, the cause is always there. But then he serves that idea very flexibly. And one thing he does is, for example, he takes up the question of economics. And he is a man of property himself. He has a great sympathy for Adam Smith. He likes that idea of the invisible hand. But he also observes that in a republic, sometimes the visible hand is useful too. And so the result is an American approach to what I would call mixed enterprise in which he shifts back and forth, encourages Hamilton to do that. The visible hand comes into it with the banks and the the public credit and all of that. But at the same time, he's trying to strengthen this market system. And mixed enterprise is something I think that we really develop a genius for. It's not free enterprise alone. It's being able to go back and forth. And he also establishes a very high ethical standard for the way people are to conduct themselves in public life. And also for their choices that they make. Much of this is about making choices. And then from 1789, maybe you could say from 1776 to 18. 18- 37, through to the end of Andrew Jackson's administration, every American president, there were lots of presidents of the Continental Congress, and then the presidents of the United States, every one of those presidents knew George Washington. And all of them were deeply influenced by his example. And it was a period of, you could say, just about 60 years, from 1776 to 1836 or so, in which this man creates a model of open leadership and it keeps going. And then I think something else happens again. You're gonna get into this with my colleague James McPherson. who's gonna take you on a forced march across the battlefield of Gettysburg. And um, he, uh, he, uh, I, something happens with his great hero, which is Abraham Lincoln. The country has changed dramatically from Washington's time to Lincoln's time. It's become a democracy in a way that Washington never knew it's becoming a nation, and that very painful process that is becomes the the, the civil war. Uh, it's become elaborately institutionalized, corporations uh, and other institutions. And uh, Abraham Lincoln is a man who is well suited to lead a republic in all of those ways. He was himself a man of the people. He was. He was the first American president to have ancestors from all four of the major ethnic cultures in, uh, in, in early American history, that is of is, Anglo-American cultures. And he also is an institution, institutional man. He was a corporation lawyer by, by profession. And he knew the complexity of this new system. And how did he lead it? First, he had an idea of the cause which was about the values that he um, put into his great state papers. He said that all of his major ideas came down to the Declaration of Independence and in particular to those phrases about equality. He had a very strong sense of of equality in the way that he thought about the world and built an idea of the Democratic Republic (coughs) around that. He also had a sense of a kind of open and, 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 uh, the, uh, a system of private property and that kind of thing. And it was lots of tensions there. <coughs> but then he has to lead this republic in the hour of one of its greatest uh, travails. And how does he do it? First, these, he becomes the, uh, the, in the great state papers, he gives the classic expression to this idea, to that idea of the cause. Then he gathers a group around him and they are his cabinet. Who does he put in his cabinet? Doris Kearns has just written a book about this. He puts into his cabinet all of his enemies and rivals in the, in the Republican Party. And it is an explosive combination. But he makes it work. He holds them together. He taps their, their creative energies just in the way that Washington had done that. And he has to energize the American economy as it's been split in two. And how does he do that? He does it by mixed enterprise, that very flexible sort of way of working. He also makes a point of putting his enemy in the wrong and keeping him there. That was a phrase from Samuel Adams. He said, it said put your enemy in the wrong and keep him there, a good maxim in war as well as politics. He was thinking of Boston politics. And he applied it to the War of Independence. And it was exactly what, what Lincoln did brilliantly in the, in, the American, in the American Civil War. The example was the Sumter Crisis, where the, um, Jefferson Davis and, um, and uh, Alexander Hamilton Stevens, particularly Jefferson Davis, are just itching. He's just itching to have at the Yankees. And um, uh, what Lincoln does is to, to maneuver Jefferson Davis into firing the first shot at Fort Sumter He puts his enemy in the wrong. uh, And he keeps him there. And he united much, though not all, of the North in the process of doing that. In the same way that Washington had used the policy of humanity to rally people in the American War of Independence. And we can see this open system of leadership reinvented for an America that has been transformed from the time of Washington and then from Lincoln's time for another period of 60 years, it goes from 1860 through to 1920. Most of the presidents in that period were deeply influenced by Lincoln's example. Uh, This was particularly the case not only for the Republicans in the 19th century who followed him, but it was also for Theodore Roosevelt in the 20th century. Roosevelt, when he uh, took the oath as president wore a, a, a ring, uh, and in the ring was a lock of Lincoln's hair. Uh, and he always spoke of the way in which he modeled. He said whenever he came to a difficult question, yes, he, he would always ask him, what would Lincoln do? And the amazing thing to me is that Woodrow Wilson did exactly the same sort of thing. Woodrow Wilson is a, is a son of the South. But he also was a nationalist, deeply interested in Lincoln, and in his ethical style of Democratic Republican politics. And so here's another period of 60 years from Lincoln to the generation of Theodore Roosevelt and, and Woodrow Wilson with that style that Lincoln had personified. And then there's a third great period in American history, and it starts in 1933. And the central figure is, frankly, Roosevelt. And Roosevelt also face, facing uh, the, the, the question how to lead this country as it struggles with two huge challenges. The first is the Great Depression, and the other is uh, the war. And he himself begins to reinvent that idea of open leadership in yet a new form. Now the world has changed profoundly from Lincoln's time. Now the president has to be a global leader as well as a national leader. He has to be able to move within the new media uh, that are developing so rapidly. Uh, and the ethnic calculus of American politics has become much more uh, intricate. And in all of those ways, uh, Franklin Roosevelt began uh, to uh, excel. And it's very interesting to read the new books. that There's a rediscovery of Franklin Roosevelt on the right these days, um, at least on some parts of the right. Uh, I'm thinking about Conrad Black. And other others who are studying the way in which he did his leading. What did he do when he? Uh, uh, first of all, he did this when he was uh, when he was governor of New York. Much of this develops in his gubernatorial career. But then, when he goes to Washington, he creates a cabinet, even a series of cabinets, which are incredibly diverse. Even more so, as it goes through from Washington to Lincoln to to, to Washington, the diversity increases. So uh, FDR has not only his cabinet, which is, has been described as probably the most diverse cabinet that any president ever uh, put together in its ideology, in its gender, uh, in, its, uh, in, in its regional base, uh, in its party base. He makes a point of bringing Republicans in, in a major way. That is, as he takes America into, into the war, the major cabinet posts for the conduct of the war are put in the hands of Republicans, and he holds this group together, and he's very good at listening and keeping his counsel in the same way that Lincoln had been, in the same way that Washington had, had been. And besides having these, this very diverse cabinet, he has other groups of advisors, lots of back-channel advisors. He encourages people to, to be in touch with him on a regular basis. He often likes to get opposite teams working on a single problem. And he knows that they're going to come at it in different ways and he encourages them to go forward with that way. And then he picks and chooses from amongst them. He's very interested in public opinion and he develops new ways of reaching it. Inventing the fireside chats as, as governor when he was trying to reach the people who were in, the, um, in upstate New York. And he does it with brilliant success. He invents the informal news conference with great success. And we see this open style. He also is very pragmatic in the way that he leads. And we can see that pragmatism in this mix of private enterprise, in public enterprise, the visible hand, the invisible hand. All three of these American leaders are, 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 are masters of that. They discover that a two-handed policy is much more powerful than a one, either of one side or the other. And then, and then uh, after a Roosevelt, there's a period of 60 years, exactly 60 years again, that is every American president from 1933 to 1993 served um, under Franklin Roosevelt in World War II, either in uniform, most of them in uniform, uh, or in high civil posts. All of them were deeply influenced by Franklin Roosevelt, even when they didn't like him very much. And some of them detested him. Dwight Eisenhower detested Franklin Roosevelt in a very personal way. But he was deeply influenced by Roosevelt's open style of leadership. And so we get a period, and it runs up to George Bush Sr. From from Franklin Roosevelt to George Bush Sr., that is through to 1993, 60 years in which we get another style of open leadership, which is, um, has its own integrity, but keeps that tradition alive. And then in between these three periods of 60 years, there are other periods in which American leadership is not so successful in politics, at least. This was the period from Jackson to Lincoln when the presidents have great difficulty. And I think when we see so many presidents having so much difficulty, we can say it was not a problem of a personal nature. They lost their way. They lost their, their a model for, for leadership. It happened again in the 1920s. From Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson through to Franklin Roosevelt, there was another period in which the American presidency was not flourishing. And then I... Uh, I think it's better for historians to talk about dead presidents than live ones, so maybe I shouldn't talk about the presidents in our own time, because that will divide us, and I think this idea of an open leadership is something that can unite us, but I do think that leadership in Washington has been um, a problem, but not of a personal nature, I don't think. I think it's more that these things have been highly personalized in our own time. I think it's more of a structural problem. It's a way of finding a model. So what I've been doing is, I've been trying to teach these ideas. And I'll just say a few words about how I have been doing it. First, much of this business comes down to an idea, uh, the word that keeps popping up is contingency. That is, what quite a number of us have been doing, uh, Jim McPherson is very much part of this, uh, it, and. Uh, what I've been doing is to try to find a way to move beyond a very deterministic way of thinking about history that prevailed in the 1960s, 70s, 80s. Uh, and in the 90s, we all started to use the word contingency. And for Jim, it means turning points, as at Gettysburg. Uh, for Stephen Jay Gould, it meant accidents that changed the course of evolution. In that book called Wonderful Life about the Burgess Shale fossils. And for me, it's about, in the, it was my Paul Revere book, it's about uh, people making choices, and choices making a difference in the world. And this open style of leadership is about how people make choices. And I think much of that leadership is, um, comes down to, to the structure of choice. That is, is a mediating idea between contingencies and structures because when we talk about a web of choice, we reintroduce structures and processes as well. And there's another thing that's interesting here in that I think an open society not only requires us to lead in a special way, but it requires many, many of us to be leaders. Everybody in this room is a leader. And we all have to learn in this society to lead in these open ways or they don't, we don't succeed so well. And so all of this is not about great men in the presidency. It's about a process of leadership that is very, very broadly diffused in this society. And this open leadership, I think, was an invention of the American Revolution. It happened in the fall of 1776, and it has been reinvented ever since. And I think it is as important as those great texts and constitutions, and that the question was, how to make that incredibly complex constitutional system work. And the only way to do that on many levels was to do it through leadership. And so I do lecture courses that are on, on that theme. And then I've been also doing small courses. I did it this, this past s- semester. And it was a course called Leadership. And the students, uh, it was very small. We, we limited it to 15 students. I think it would work for about 30, maybe. Uh, and. Um, They are invited to lead the course and to center on people who've made a success of open leadership in many different fields. They had ideas of successful open leadership that would not have occurred to me, Lance Armstrong. And there were many others who we studied in great detail. We invited some of them into the class. And because leadership is so broadly diffused, there are lots of leadership models that way. And we found that there were many, many different ideas of open leadership. Lots of ways that this could be done. And the students also were energized by the experience of leading in a class. And I thought that worked. And uh, my father, who was a teacher, told me that he said that uh, some students will learn no matter what you do to them. (laughs) And I found that when you put them in this open frame of a leadership course at which they themselves are leading, they start teaching their teacher. And that's where I'll stop.